You're listening to Black Music Scene, a product of the Black Orchestral Network, where our mission is to cultivate community, lift our voices, and tell our stories. Today's episode takes us through the life and times of the harpist, Anne Hobson Pilot, a Black woman whose talent and prowess as a harp player shattered the color barrier of the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1969, leading her to forge a decorated career as a harpist inspiring many of the Black classical musicians of today. For over four decades, Anne forged an awe-inspiring career through some of our country's most intense racial moments while still performing at the highest level in a field of music most known for its social and racial prejudice. With grace, honesty, and incomparable skill, Anne led a career that many even now would dare to achieve. We've archived her story to uplift and to share for generations to come. This is Anne Hobson Pilot. My name is Anne Hobson Pilot originally from Philadelphia. I'm a harpist who was with the Boston Symphony for 40 years from 1969 to 2009 and before that with the Washington National Symphony for three years from 66 to 69. I'm the daughter of Grace Stevens Hobson and my father was Harrison Dennis Hobson. My mother was a concert pianist, uh, so I heard piano music from the time I was born, may as well say. And then, of course, I started the piano when I was five years old, actually, in, in, in Germany. I started studying piano with her and with other teachers. And we came back from Germany when I was nine. Uh, I was still studying piano. But the piano. Uh, I guess it was because my, my mother was so, such a wonderful pianist and my older sister played piano. And so it never really encouraged me to work hard at it. So I didn't. And one day my mother came home and said, I've stopped your lessons because you don't practice. So then I said to myself, hey, that's fine. Then I'll fix her up when I go to, I was going to girls high school in Philly at the time. And they had a wonderful, uh, program where they offered all the orchestral instruments. So when I went to high school, which was the Philadelphia High School for Girls, when I was 14 years old, I asked the music teacher uh, if I could play another instrument, and she recommended the harp because the reading is similar, treble clef, clef and bass clef, you use two hands, and uh, so I decided to try it. And from the age of 14, I've loved it ever since. I guess from the time that my mother used to play the piano, I used to love to listen to her playing Chopin. That was one of her favorite composers. And also Beethoven so that uh, when I joined the symphony, those were two composers that I enjoyed listening to, as well as a lot of composers that used harp well, like Mahler, like uh, the French composers Ravel, 
and Debussy. Uh, so those are my favorite composers. Well, after I graduated from Girls High at 17, I think it was, uh, I went to the Philadelphia Musical Academy, which was a conservatory in downtown Philly. And while I was there, uh, one of the violin teachers at the school said to me um, that he was, had enjoyed my playing and that he worked at the Latin Casino and that uh, they had a certain entertainer coming up. His name was Johnny Mathis and they needed a harp, a harpist for that particular show. Would I be interested in it? And I said, Johnny Mathis, are you kidding? <laughs> uh, so I said, absolutely. So I got the job and it was for, I believe it was for a week. So I went to the rehearsals and all, and then the performances. And at the very first performance, I didn't know this was gonna happen at all. But Johnny Mathis, when he was singing Chances Are, came over to the harp. I, I was on an elevated platform, and he came over to the harp and kneeled down and started singing Chances Are to me. And I was, <laughs> didn't quite know what to do. I mean, I had to keep playing, but you know, it was, it was very, very, you know, I mean, I, obviously it was, it was fun. It was, I was comp complimented and all, but it was just so different. And then his, his shtick became at the, at the end of that. And he did the same thing every single concert. He sung to me every single concert. And then he would turn around to the audience and say, and she's only 18. So that, that, of course, was something I'll never forget. Johnny Bath is singing to me on Bended Me. <laughs> I had been at the Philadelphia Musical Academy, as I said, for two and a half years, but I had a mentor. Her name was Edna Phillips Rosenbaum. She had been the principal harpist of the Philadelphia Orchestra for many years, uh, but she had retired but she had heard me play and my teacher was actually a student of hers. So she was very encouraging um, to me. And she really wanted me to go to Cleveland because Cleveland had this wonderful teacher, Alice Shalafu, who was very legendary harp, harpist and harp, harp teacher. And she really thought that Alice Shalafu would uh, really uh, make my playing even better. So she was on the board of the Philadelphia Foundation and was able to arrange for me to get a full tuition scholarship to the Cleveland Institute of Music. So in January of that year, 1964, January of 64. Yeah, so my parents drove me up there to the Institute where I was gonna be staying in the dorm uh, at Case Western. The Case Western Reserve dorms were used for the Institute students too. So they drove me up from Philly to Cleveland and I unloaded all my luggage and met my roommate and we went out for dinner and then they left to go back to Philly. And so when I got back to my room, 
my roommate had moved out. <laughs> she, uh, and I was wondering what, you know, she had moved all of her stuff out, her luggage, her books, and everything that, that had been there. So the house mother came, came running to the room and said, uh, I said, well, what, what happened to her? She said, well, she, she refused to stay in the same room with a black student, so she moved out. It turned out she was also a student at the, at the Cleveland Institute of Music. She was a pianist, which kind of surprised me because she knew I was going to be at the Institute. And well, the whole thing surprised me. So, um, so obviously we had a, shall I say, not existed relationship for the rest of our time there. Yeah. Basically, I continued to, you know, to go on. I mean, there was nothing I could do. And if she didn't want to, room with me and I certainly didn't want to want a room with her. I mean, it certainly hurt for a bit, but uh, I didn't think that much of it until um, until the time went on when I'd have meals in the dorm and all of these, all of the, I think I was the only black student in the entire women's dorm, that particular dorm. And so all of these white students were coming up to me and said, we heard what happened. I'm so sorry to hear that. That was not right of her and all this kind of stuff. Well, that made me feel kind of angry. You know, I mean, I, I never said, expressed it, but I thought, you know, I'd rather they just not say anything, you know, but it was making it worse. And I don't know if they did that intentionally or if they thought they were being uh, comforting, but that certainly was not, not comforting. But yeah, I mean, you have to, just keep going, you know, and, and I think all of those kind of things, including the, the chicken story, which is when my first rehearsal in the BSO, when a member of the orchestra came up to me and didn't say, you know, welcome to the orchestra or something, but uh, he said, you must fry some mean chicken. <laughs> I mean, that, that to this day, I think is funny. I mean, I think it's an ignorant statement, but I think it's funny. Uh, for, for, for someone, in the, this is the historic Boston Symphony, right? And I had won the job, and that's all that they could think of to say. But, but uh, maybe on some level, those kind of comments and those kind of experiences buoyed me on to be even better, to, to really try to, to uh, prove that not only did I belong there, but I could excel beyond um, what was expected of me. And, and so I think that that motivated me. Well, I guess the first time I got a comment like that was when I was visiting a friend of mine who played the harp and her mother was taking me on a tour of their home. And uh, there was a painting on the wall of a harpist and she turned to me and she said, now that woman looks like a harpist is supposed to look with long blonde hair. <laughs> and I looked at her and I thought, it's kind of a strange thing to say to me. You know? <laughs> and then later on, uh, someone wanted to write a children's book about me. And this is a white woman and uh, so I said, you know, sure. So she wrote up a, a little book um, as a kind of a sketch, but she wanted to title the book Black Angel. And I said, well, well, why are you titling it Black Angel? And she said, well, 
because she thought it would be neat to have the children, other children in the, in the school say, you're playing the harp, but only angels play the harp. And who ever heard of a black angel? The harp is considered to be an instrument of women, not black women, but women. The first people hired in symphony orchestras that were women were harpists. So for example, my, my teacher joined the Cle Cleveland Orchestra, and I think it was something like 1943, and she was the first woman in the Cleveland Orchestra. The woman I mentioned, Edna Phillips Rosenbaum, she was the first woman in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and she was a harpist. So, so it wasn't that unusual being a woman, but it was unusual being a black person. So I was, uh, I had graduated from the Cleveland Institute of Music and was about to go back to get uh, a master's de degree. I'd signed up to get a master's degree. When I got a call from my teacher, I was at home in Philly at the time, saying that the National Symphony needed a harpist for this coming season because their harpist had a serious injury to her hand. She was clipping hedges and put the hedge clippers up on a shelf, the hedge shelf, and they fell opened and completely severed the tip of her middle finger. So obviously she was not going to be able to play for at least a year. And I had just gotten back from playing in Marlboro uh, music uh, camp, I guess you call it, in Ver Vermont, where it was Rudolf Serkin's camp and Pablo Casals was there and I was there for two years and so they, my, my teacher said that I was there and they contacted Rudolf Serkin and he recommended me and uh, other people there recommended me. So by the time they got to me, they said, well, we have, you come highly recommended, but we need you to come right now and sign a contract with us for the, the season. So I went down and signed the contract and uh, Turned out that they liked my playing so much that they asked me to stay beyond the first year. So I was basically the harpist there at that point for three years. I stayed for three years because then my third year, Arthur Fiedler, conductor of the Boston Pops, came to guest conduct us in Washington. And he called me into his room and said, uh, I really like your playing and our harpist for the Boston Pops is retiring and I'd like you to come and audition for the job there because I think you'd uh, have a good chance of getting it and uh, it's also you'd be playing with a Boston Symphony. So I decided to sign up for that and give it a try and uh, I won the job and it, it was difficult deciding at first because it was really principal in Washington and it was uh, second harp in the BSO but first in the Pops. So I turned it down at first, and then they sweetened the pie and said, well, we'll make you assistant first and give you a little bit more money and all of that. So I, I decided to, to go. Uh, my, my teacher had spoken to her music director, George Zell. She was with the Cleveland Orchestra. And she discussed it with him, and he said, oh, she definitely should go to Boston because the Washington National Symphony will never be the Boston Symphony. So I decided to go, and it was obviously the, the right thing to do. <laughs> well, I think the most important 
thing is confidence, is to have confidence in your playing, confidence in who you are, and uh, not to let anybody take that away from you, not, not let any, anybody try to make you think that you don't belong. Because, you, you know, as a, as a black musician, you belong as, as well as in, anyone else. So uh, I think that's, that's the most important thing. And, and, and two, th there will be incidents, like I've just told you about a couple of them, where you might get angry. Um, so not to get angry, just to try to control the anger. And, uh, you know, and, and it would be helpful to, to know that you belong and that you um, are doing a good job. After sharing her story, Anne sat down with two of the founding members of the Black Orchestral Network, Joy Payton Stevens and Titus Underwood. Joy spent seven years as a cellist with the Seattle Symphony and now works as an innovation strategist, advancing the fight for fair treatment of everyone from conversation to action. Titus is an Emmy award-winning musician who serves as the principal oboist of the Nashville Symphony and professor of oboe at Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Join Titus are just two of the myriad of black classical musicians that Anne has inspired throughout her career. Here they are in conversation. Welcome back to the Black Music Scene podcast. My name is Joy Peyton Stevens, and I am joined by my fantastic co-host, Titus Underwood. Hello, hello. <laughs> the Black Music Scene podcast is a product of the Black Orchestral Network, where our mission is dedicated to cultivating community, lifting voices, and telling the stories of Black identifying people within classical music. Everyone, from the instrumentalists, composers, instrument makers, and everyone in between. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by a groundbreaking, barrier-shattering, and all-around fantastic musician, Miss Anne Hobson-Pilot. Anne, thanks so much for sharing your story just now and sitting down with us to chat. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, it's a real pleasure to be able to sit down and connect with you and ask you a whole bunch of questions related to your career, your musicianship, and most importantly, just you as a person. So, Anne, if, if somebody were to pull together three people who know you quite well and ask them to describe you, what are some things they might say? Well, I started with one, because there was only one person in the room at the time, and that was my, my, my husband. And I asked him, and his first comment was honest. Um, another one was, he said, I'm dedicated to my craft and that I'm also very supportive of my students. That's one person's opinion, but he was the only other one in the room. <laughs> well, he's probably a pretty important person and he probably knows you very well. And those sound like three really wonderful qualities to have. Absolutely. And that's an important person to <laughs> speak exactly. your truth to. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to move on and say, I read that your father was in the Army, and because of that, you lived in Germany from ages five to nine. What do you yes. remember about your time spent there as a child, and how do you think those years molded you as a person? Well, what I remember most, I actually happened to be reading um, some books about that period of time right, at, right after the war, which is when we went there 
<clears throat> right after World War II in Germany. And uh, even though I was only five years old, I do remember being very, I don't know if you say impressed or depressed by all of the destruction around. I mean, you see it now on uh, what's, what's happening in Ukraine. If, if you look at these pictures of these bombed out buildings and stuff, that's what was going on there. And as a, as a small child, I remember being horrified by, by that. Um, after we lived there for close to four years, and uh, we lived in German neighborhoods where my sister and I, my sister's two years older, uh, so we were five and seven or six and eight, you know, and uh, we met a lot of German kids who um, a lot of them had never seen black kids before, certainly had never met them and played with them. So it was a real curiosity for, for them sometimes coming over and asking if the color comes off and things like that. But so it was, a, it was um, an interesting experience. I see. And do you speak any German today? I would think that if you were playing with other German kids that you spoke with German with them or were you speaking English with them? Or, and does it, do you retain any, any of that today? Well, it's been a long time since I was five. Let's put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did speak it when I was five or when, when I was over there. We were taught, we went to an army school. My father was in the army. And we were taught in army schools, but we were taught German. And during the years that I was there, of course, I, I learned German pretty quickly, my sister and I, and, and we did speak German to the, to the kids, and they learned some English also. But as I said, that was a long time ago, so I have forgotten most of my German, mainly because I haven't kept it up. I see, I see. Well, we know you're no stranger to international travel, having recorded and performed in places like London, New Zealand, South Africa, Haiti, and more. From your tours and performances abroad, what memorable moments have stuck out to you? I guess the first one I would think of would be the performance I gave in Johannesburg, South Africa, in 1997, where <clears throat> I was the soloist of the Johannesburg Symphony and performed the Handel Concerto as well as the William Grant Still Ananga. Um, Ananga is an African harp, and he wrote that piece many years ago uh, to to uh, to showcase the harp. It's a, it's a it's a piece with harp solo with accompaniment of piano and strings, and it actually went over quite well there. Another performance that really sticks out, uh, international performance, was in Buenos Aires, Argentina more recently in, I believe it was 19, no, I believe it was 2017 or 16 or 17, where I soloed with the National Symphony of Argentina, Buenos Aires Philharmonic at the historic Teatro Colón, a soloist in the Hinostera Concerto to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Hinostera's birth. So that was also very exciting. Oh my goodness, those sound like such amazing landmark performances, being able to travel and perform. Um, you know, as, our, as you know, part of our mission through the Black Orchestral Network is to help create a world where Black orchestral artists find reflections of themselves in community of Black classical musicians. 
Could you describe some of the feedback or reactions that you received from the performances in, in uh, countries like Haiti or South Africa or some of the performances that you just described? Like, what was the reaction from some, some of the Black audience members to your presence there? Well, first of all, in Johannesburg, the only um, Black audience member I saw was my husband. <laughs> there, were, wow. there were no other Black audience members there. Wow. It was an wow. entirely white audience. However, they were very receptive, and uh, there's a film of showing the audience applauding. Um, so I didn't feel any animosity at all. It was shortly after apartheid had ended, and uh, I had actually been asked to perform uh, with the orchestra before apartheid ended, which I had refused to do because I did not want to play to an audience where blacks were excluded. So at this this particular concert, blacks were could have gone, but you know of course that was all very new to everybody back then. So there there were no as I said, Prentice was the only black member that, um, that he or I saw uh, in Argentina. Again, it was mostly Argentinians who were there. I didn't see a, a number of black African Americans there. But again, the, the reception was, was very good. And in Haiti, of course, in Haiti, there were a lot of Haitians there. So there were um, a lot of black people there. And also the reception was, was wonderful. I think um, in all of these places, what was particularly touching, I think, was not only the fact that a black woman was performing as a soloist, but the instrument that I was performing uh, on, <laughs> the harp, because uh, um, the harp as an instrument was, was always thought of to be either the instrument of men or the instrument of women with long blonde hair. And, and I, I, I have often received comments about how unusual it is for a black a black woman to be playing the harp. It isn't anymore, but it was back then. <laughs> yes, yes. Thankfully, it, it really isn't that uncommon anymore. But um, it certainly still is um, not that often seen, especially on um, professional stages. Um, I'm curious, that brings to mind, were there times in, in your career where you were able to perform with all black ensembles or majority black ensembles? And um, if so, were you left with any feelings or reflections from being able to perform with, with you know, people of similar backgrounds to you? Actually, the first time I performed with uh, an all black ensemble was when I was very young. It was probably, I started the harp when I was 14. So I was still in high school, so maybe I was 16, maybe 17 in Philadelphia, and it was an orchestra called the Philadelphia Concert Orchestra, which was organized by, for, for this particular reason, to give black players an opportunity to perform. And uh, to me, it was very unusual, uh, except that I was so young, I didn't really um, realize how unusual it was. Uh, then my next um, opportunity to perform with an all-black ensemble was around 1980 when I performed, was asked to perform with the Ritz Chamber Players, which is an all-African-American group based in Jacksonville. 
by then, you know, 1980, I had gone through all the years with the BSO that I had and many other groups. And by then it was a different experience for, for me to play with an all black uh, chamber music group. And it was the most wonderful thing. I mean, it seemed like playing with family, which I had never experienced before. So I, I still, to this day, uh, perform concerts with the Ritz cha Chamber players, and, and they are some of the most talented black musicians in the, the country. And it's, it's still, still very heartwarming for me to perform with them. Definitely. Like most people who have accomplished groundbreaking feats or have contributed to a large-scale change, you don't really know the magnitude of what you're doing until the dust settles and you can sit back and reflect. Does this resonate with you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I was, um, I started the harp when I was 14. I practiced hard. I had wonderful success with being recommended to do certain concerts and play with certain orchestras. And then I got the Washington job, then I got the Boston job, and I continued on through. And it wasn't until 2018 at the League of American Orchestras convention when I was given the Gold Baton Award, when uh, afterwards, after the uh, um, cer ceremony with my Gold Baton Award and all, I was standing in line at kind of a receiving line, and there were all of these black, young black mu musicians coming up to me and saying, you were my role model. I never would have started playing the oboe or the violin or cello without you because I used to watch you on Evening at Pops and Evening at Symphony. And, I mean, just one, one after another. And I, I must admit, I was really, I mean, obviously I was very pleased, but I had no idea. I mean, that might have been ignorant of me, but it just never occurred to, to me that, uh, that I was making such an impression. Mm, mm. And, and also, when you began playing with Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1969, did it feel like you achieved something against many odds, or did you proceed with business as usual? Well, I won't say it was business as, as usual, because... When I looked around the orchestra, I didn't see anyone in there that looked like me, so I assumed it wasn't. And it was another 20 years before another black player was hired, which is Owen Young, the wonderful cellist. Mm -hmm. And when I left 20 years later, Owen Young became the only black player in the BSO. So you can't, I mean, I certainly realized that it wasn't, it wasn't business as usual. Um, but I didn't... You know, I didn't pat myself on the back and say, well, I've, I, I've made it kind of thing. It was, just, it was just something I wanted to do. I wanted to be an orchestral harp harpist, and I had achieved that, and I was still just working as hard as I could to, be, to continue to play at the top, to stay at the top of my game. So, Anne, I definitely wanted to hear a lot more about your relationship with John Williams. Um, I know that there was a concerto that was commissioned from him, and you guys have a long-standing relationship. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, I was uh, in the orchestra when John came as the music director of the Boston Pops back in 1980, and uh, I just really enjoyed working with him, he was such a 
breath of fresh air after what we had with uh, the kind of music we were playing with Fiedler and the relationship there. So we always got along well and uh, I always respected him and it was clear that he respected me. And um, so when I was about to retire from the BSO, I spoke to James Levine, who was the music director at the time, and said that I was preparing to retire. And actually I was going to retire sooner than I did. And he asked me to stay through 2009 because he was taking the orchestra to Europe in 2008 and wanted to do a lot of Mahler, which has a lot of heart. And so he asked me if I would stay, so I agreed to. So when I did, he said, I'd like to give you a retirement gift. What would you like as a retirement gift? And so I said, I think it would be wonderful to have a new harp concerto written. Just a small thing. New harp concerto, that's all. <laughs> that's all I'm asking. So he said he thought that would be wonderful. And he said, and who would you like to, to write it? And uh, I thought, and I said, well, actually, I'd like for John Williams to, to write it. And he said, what a great idea. So he asked John, I asked John. Tony Fogg, uh, the artistic administrator, asked him. And John basically said, no, he didn't think he could do it. The harp is too difficult to write for, and you know, he didn't think he could do it. But we leaned on him. And eventually he agreed. Uh, and he wrote, uh, I, I think it's a wonderful piece, and it was such an honor for him to do this. He ended up, you know, the BSO was planning to commission it, and he ended up giving it as a gift to the orchestra and to me. And uh, so I got to premiere it uh, with Jimmy Levine conducting at Symphony Hall. And also then they decided to, uh, to perform it at Carnegie Hall for the opening of Carnegie Hall on October 1st of 2009. So, I mean, I had performed at Carnegie Hall many times, but never a soul was so, that was, it was just, just a wonderful experience. And then there were many orchestras that were interested in the piece because of John Williams, that name. And so after I did retire in 2009, I ended up being asked to play it many times around the country, and I performed it in Canada, and uh, so I think I performed his piece maybe 20 times. So I, I call it the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I think of retirement, I think, you know, kind of done, tired, end of the career, ready to, you know, take a nap. And no, you're like, I'm going to learn a new concerto. That's what I want to <laughs> do to mark my retirement occasion. I think that really speaks to uh, your work ethic and um, just your, your effervescent uh, personality uh, when it comes to the harp and, and the work that you put into it. Uh, and, and I love the idea that John Williams um, gifted this piece to you. Uh, I think that speaks to the respect uh, that you command in the field as well. Well, the, the other thing is um, John was said he was insecure about some of the writing for the harp, so he wanted to send me clips of some of the concerto as it went along. But John doesn't use email. He, I, I don't know how he got away with not using email all these years, but he <laughs> prefers snail mail. So he would send me clips of the concerto to my mailbox here. And like once a week, I would go out and there's another page of the concerto from John Williams. And you know, ah, another page from John. <laughs> and um, I mean, we just had a really great relationship. And on one of the, one of the, um, 
emails where he wrote another clip. He, he signed it at the bottom. You know I'm your biggest fan. So that, wow. that made my day. <laughs> yeah, that would be a day maker for me as well. <laughs> That's great. That is awesome. I, I wanted to ask one last question. Um, is there anything you miss about being in the BSO or being in the orchestra full time? I guess the main thing I miss is the stage crew. Because, as you said, carrying that harp is more than a notion. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you spend 40 years with these guys that just pick up the instrument and take it on and off the stage, and then all of a sudden uh, you're left on your own, it's, uh, that's, that's the main thing I miss. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I don't think the stage crew gets enough credit. They're right, great guys, right. the yeah. professional, the friendly they always take care of what you need. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I would be remiss without them as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and I must say the librarians did their share of wonderful work as a harpist, you know, you have to get your music in advance and pedal it and all that kind of stuff. So that was, they're, they're the second on my list after the mm. stage. That's great, that is great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Thank you, thank you. Titus, do you want to kick it off? Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Anne, for being here. It was a privilege speaking with you. It is amazing to capture your story and see all the things that you've accomplished. Um, me ending on such an amazing high note in your um, maybe the concerto actually ended on a high note, literally. But I, I love um, hearing your career and it's the trajectory of it and every and all the people that you've inspired, like myself and people that you see here today so your work has been amazing and made a huge impression on the the black community at large as far as musicians are concerned even though at that time you were saying you didn't see it at the time but now you can see that those seeds are starting to grow into trees and speak with you on the podcast and those of us who have careers can talk to you how you inspired us as well so thank you so much it's a privilege yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast additionally is to spread that inspiration even beyond, you know, the people who are in the know um, in classical music and, and of course have heard of you and your legacy um, and your pioneering work with BSO. Um, even beyond the, the walls of classical music, and they, there are some walls, um, and hopefully inspire uh, people that wouldn't otherwise pick up an instrument um, and start taking lessons and, and become interested in classical music. So, yeah, it's a real privilege to be able to finally chat with you and, and meet you sort of virtually. And thank you for everything that you've done. Well, it's been a real pleasure for me also. And I'm so impressed with this, uh, this, this project. And uh, I'm really sure that it's, it's going to help, help the, the cause. <laughs> We certainly hope so. Absolutely. Well, thank you for tuning in. My name is Joy. My name is Titus. And be sure to tune next time to the Black Music Scene Podcast. The Black Music Scene Podcast was written and produced by David Norville and co-hosted by Joy Peyton Stevens and Titus Underwood. Special thanks goes to Jennifer Arnold and Alex Lang. The Black Orchestral Network is sponsored by the Gateways Music Festival and generously supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The Black Music Scene Podcast is a product of the Black Orchestral Network, where our mission is to cultivate community, lift our voices, and tell our stories. If you'd like to get involved and support the Black Orchestral Network, please visit 
blackorchestralnetwork.org.